Good morning. Scripture reading for this morning will be from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And it reads, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He did receive him to those who came. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to begin a a new series that's going to deal with the questions and answers that are uh, usually swirling around Christmas. And uh, this morning, we're going to kick that off inside of the the bulletin. You'll find the outline for the uh, the sermon this morning with uh, all the major points with some places for you to fill in the blank, as well as a lot of white space for you to make some notes in case there are some things that you want to follow up on later this week. Uh, Grateful that all of uh, the college kids and a lot of, lot of family that we don't always get to see very often is here this weekend because of Thanksgiving holiday. We're, it's really great to see uh, some of these faces we've not seen in a long time. And we miss you and we hope that you'll stick around for a little bit so that we can catch up with you. Let's begin uh, our, our study of this text by going to the Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, the love that you into flesh (coughs) in a way that enabled you to feel pain and grief, to experience turmoil and trouble, to laugh and feel lighthearted, to heal while being hurt, this is still a great mystery to us. You have not given us knowledge to know how this came about, except that through faith we believe it to be true with all of our heart, the Incarnation. We also know that this Spirit become flesh is about love, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we ask on this day to have eyes and ears to not only know it to be true, but to stand in pure, unadulterated awe of the fact of the Incarnation. We thank you for this grace from the bottom of our heart. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you know anything about me, you know that I come from a long line of Christmas-loving people. My father was a connoisseur of Christmas music, an eclectic um, builder of a of Christmas music collection, from Dolly Parton to Alabama to Johnny Mathis to Elvis. Listen to it all. The first first album, Christmas album, that he introduced us to was uh, Gene Autry sings uh, Holiday Favorites, and it was the one that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was on. My mother would decorate our home in a way that made it look like it had just stepped out of the pages of a magazine. 
And my brothers and I have great memories of Christmas morning on 364 days of the year you could barely get us out of bed. But every Christmas morning, 4 a.m. sharp, we were up and we were wide awake and we were ready for the day to begin. It was only uh, a little bit later in life that I discovered that there were uh, Christians like my family, like me, like us, who didn't really want to have anything to do with Christmas. In every church that I know, there are members who struggle with the relationship between Christians and Christmas. In the church that supported our family as missionaries down in Brazil, there was a family that we had grown extremely close to who sincerely wanted nothing to do with Christmas. They were uh, not allowed to exchange gifts. There was no tree in their home. They didn't listen to Christian uh, to Christmas music. And these, these folks were, were not fanatics or wild-eyed lunatics. They were people we loved and respected greatly and considered to be some of our best friends. They set a standard for ministry in that particular church, in the way that they would reach out to people in the community. But in interacting with them about this, about this, this holiday, Christmas, there was a question that began to form in my mind. And the question was, why would Christians oppose Christmas when it would appear that we would be the people to cheer it on the most? I want to spend uh, our time this morning considering very respectfully the arguments that have been made over the years in every Christian tradition, not just ours, on why Christians sometimes struggle with Christmas. And it's because, number one, inundated with paganism, number two, overrun with materialism, and number three, not authorized biblically. What I want to do is just to very respectfully consider all of these arguments. Let's begin with that first one. Christmas is inundated with paganism. Christmas, by definition, very simply, is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Now, one fact that is clear about Christmas, we do not know the day of the year on which Jesus was born. The Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Eastern Orthodox Church, celebrates it on January 6th. The Armenian Church celebrates Christmas on January 19th. If you do a lot of reading about Christmas, you know that debates have formed on what time of the year shepherds would have been out in the fields tending their sheep. December 25th was chosen in the early centuries of the church and celebrated as the birth of Jesus for the first time in 354 A.D. The fall festivals of uh, Saturnalia, the birthday of the unconquered sun, all of that happening around winter solstice was celebrated in the ancient world, much like Mardi Gras is celebrated today. A lot of the the moral restrictions were eased. In fact, they were sort of obliterated. December 25th attempted to convert an incredibly immoral day into a religious day. And many of the traditional decorations of Christmas, like candles, wreaths, and trees, were tied to some of these older pagan customs and beliefs. And this, quite frankly, is why many sincere believers say that we should not have anything to do with Christmas. It's blanketed in ancient paganism. But here's the thing. The reality is that those things have been long forgotten. They do not carry the same meaning they once did. In fact, the opposite is true today. 
I have a friend who works for a university, a large university in the Midwest, who was not permitted and is not permitted to wear clothing with any of the icons of Christmas. Trees, wreaths, stars, manger, you name it. Not allowed to wear any type of clothing during the holiday season with the icons of Christmas on that campus because of its association with Jesus and Christianity. Christianity has reversed the cultural interpretations of many things through the years and given them new meaning, a kingdom of God meaning. For example, the cross to us today does not have the same meaning that it did to people in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the cross was a cruel death. It meant that the person that was hanging on that cross was a cursed individual. But for those of us who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the cross is a symbol of love. The love of God, of of the resurrection, of death being destroyed, and hope of life and abundant life with God forever and ever. And if we were consistent with this line of thought that said we should stay away from anything that smacks of paganism, we would have to do away with necklaces and earrings because those things were used in the pagan world to ward off evil spirits and... If you wear them today with the same line of thought, you would believe in false gods too. But we don't practice that and we don't teach that. The bottom line is that with the exception of a handful of days, all the days of the year were sullied and the overwhelming majority of the world was pagan. And Jesus was born into the world on a day that reflected the spiritual state of humans. The days were pagan. And that's the reason that God sent His Son in the first place, to bring the solution that makes the change and converts the human heart and soul. Uh, Number two, Christmas is overrun with materialism. That's absolutely true, isn't it? Christmas consumerism, Christmas commercials are already running. I laugh, I'll probably be sick of it by next week, but that one with the the red GMC uh, truck and the the blue one, and the guy buys it for him and his wife, and she chooses his truck, and she says, I love it. I just love it. I love that commercial. They've already started. I'll be sick of it next week. But I, I love the Christmas commercials. The Christmas spending season comes earlier and earlier and earlier. I'm old enough to remember a time when there was not a Black Friday. Or Cyber Friday. Materialism is alive and well during Christmas. And quite frankly, folks, that should not surprise us at all. Why should we be surprised that Satan would try to corrupt Christmas and turn people's minds away from contemplating the birth of Jesus, the mystery of the Incarnation, and the love that saturates that event? There will always be attempts to counterfeit things that are precious and valuable to God and to us. No one has ever tried to counterfeit an HEB plastic shopping bag. But people try to counterfeit $100 bills and masterpiece paintings all the time. And it's true. Christmas can become fake and shallow and ugly when it becomes about all of that stuff. But we are the people who say that the world is not the same 
because we are not the same. And it's because of a baby that was born in a manger, in poverty, in danger, on the run, and who grew up to be the Savior of the world in love. And then Christmas is not authorized biblically. People have said to me that the Bible never commands us to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I say true again. True again. So why do we not make the same argument about Mother's Day or Thanksgiving? There is no direct command to set aside a day to honor mothers. But here's the thing to think about. Just because something is not expressly commanded in the Bible does not mean that it is forbidden. I want to say it again. Just because something is not expressly commanded in the Bible does not mean that it is forbidden. Here's an example, one example. In John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, we read, Then there came the feast of, what? Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple and walking in Solomon's colonnade. The feast of dedication was also known as Hanukkah. In 167 B.C., do a little ancient history. In 167 B.C., the Syrian ruler, you remember Alexander the Great had taken over uh, uh, the Promised Land, and then after he died, shortly after conquering and, and taking over the Promised Land, the Ptolemies out of Egypt, one of his generals took over that part of the world, and then after him, the Seleucids out of Syria took over that part of the world. So in 167 B.C., you have this Syrian ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who overruns Jerusalem and he desecrates the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. He desecrates it by setting up a pagan altar displacing the Jewish altar. As you can imagine, this makes the Jewish nation livid. And so in not long after that, a year or two after that, rebellion broke out in the village of Modane. Small village not far from Jerusalem, there is a priest by the name of, uh, his last name is Has, he's a Hasmonean, first name Mattathias. Mattathias, the Hasmonean family. And the, the Seleucids come into town and they say, we want you to worship you know, pagan gods. And the Hasmonean family says, this is not the way it's going to be. And out of that little village, there is this revolt against the Syrians, against the Seleucids. And there is this, it's known as the Maccabean Revolt. During this revolt, the temple is retaken, and it's rededicated on the 25th of Kislev in the year 164 B.C. The rededication of the temple was celebrated for eight days and became the yearly eight-day celebration known as Hanukkah. It was also known as the Feast of Lights because of the candles and the lamps in homes throughout Jerusalem. Now, this feast that Jesus is at is not commanded anywhere in Scripture because the events leading to its inception happened 150 years before the birth of Jesus. And within that 400 years of silence between Malachi in the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. Paul, writing about special days that are to God, says in Romans 14, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
Paul seems to be saying that a special day that you set aside in your heart to remember something that you're grateful for, that you want to show gratitude to God about, that you're thankful for, is completely permissible. Sometimes the argument against Christmas continues along this line, that God wants us to think about the birth of Jesus every day and not just one day. I say true. But I ask, did God only want the people to think of the Passover? And what He revealed about Himself at the Passover and all of those plagues and its significance only on the day of Passover when He established it? Or did He want to think about it all the time? I believe that God recognizes the significance of having a day that reinforces the special truths and rekindles the joy of His mighty acts in life. For us, Christmas provides some opportunities. This is one of two days out of the year where our culture tips its hat to our faith. And one of our opportunities is that Christmas underscores and recognizes the Incarnation. That God became a human being is at the core of our belief. In fact, when you go to... uh, Uh, the the, the latter writings of the Apostle John, the Antichrist, that is written so much about, the Antichrist, scripturally, is the one that denies that Jesus came in the flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what, church? In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. When Thomas sees Jesus for the first time after the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 28, he says, My Lord and my God. Over in uh, Romans chapter 9, Paul says, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all and forever praised. Amen. Paul writes to Titus on the island of Crete, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, say it, Jesus Christ. But about the Son, he says, that anonymous writer of Hebrews, says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. 2 Peter chapter 1, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. When we look at the life of Jesus, we are seeing God in the flesh. God is being revealed to us. We also see God that God is doing what no man could do, and that is to save himself. God is bearing the sins of humans. In fact, if God in Christ was not human, then He did not prove that the old law was possible by a human being. But God, as a human, Christ Jesus, did the law, fulfilled the law. He was able to become the bearer of our sins, and the author of our salvation. And then secondly, Christmas announces that salvation has come 
and the great lengths that God will go to provide that salvation for human beings. At the birth of Jesus, everything was pointing to an infant that would grow up and as a man live the life that we should have lived and who would die the death that we deserved to die. And why would he do that except love? In Matthew chapter 1, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will what? Say it with me. He will save his people from their sins. And then two verses later in verse 23, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, with God with us. That physician Luke, chapter 2, an angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. It's God breaking into human history. It is God not only breaking into human history and being born, but growing up and doing wondrous things that leads to our eternal salvation and our abundant life beginning in this life. And passing through death into all of eternity. The fact that God would squeeze Himself into flesh for our sake is cause for celebration. I would ask this of you. In the coming days before Christmas morning, and especially on Christmas morning, before anything happens on that day, Spend some time reading the accounts of the birth of Jesus. Read Matthew. Read Luke. Memorize parts of it. Go back to those, those references that you find in Isaiah and elsewhere that talk about the prophecies of this son being born in which God would once again enter into his creation in such a way that it would begin to spread the knowledge of him like water covers the oceans. This is one of two days. The other one is Easter. But this is one of two days in the year in which in our culture, we find our culture tipping its hat to our faith. And I think it's a, a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous opportunity for us to remind the world that the, how do you explain Philippians chapter 2? And, and Christ saying, my equality with God, God the Father, God the Son, that my equality with God is not something that I'm going to hang on to and grip and, and you can't pull me away from it, but empties himself of all of that. And travels from eternity into our time and is born vulnerable, vulnerable little baby in poverty, in danger, family's going to be on the run. He's going to grow up in obscurity in a little village up in the north called Nazareth. And then at the age of 30, he is going to begin teaching about the kingdom of God. And not only teach about the kingdom of God, he's going to bring the kingdom of God, its power, into the presence of people through the healings and, and helping people to rise from the dead. And not only that, 
He's not just teaching and he's not just doing the miracles and the healing and blessing people that way, but he's living a life that is the complete fulfillment of the law of God without blemish, without transgression, without iniquity in such a way that he becomes the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And not only that, in love, not only in that, not, not only that, but in love, he allows himself to be betrayed and to be nailed to a cross and to die so that he takes on our sins in order for us to get his righteousness. It's a fantastic opportunity to bring the real meaning of what it means for Jesus to be born into the world. That it's not just about the management of our sins. That it's not just about sins being forgiven. But it's about being transformed. It's about a whole new way of life. It's about joy, real joy, and real hope coming into our life. It's about, it's about a relationship with God that is palpable in this life. It's about not fearing death. It's about knowing that the universe is a perfectly safe place to live. It's about bringing love into the, and light into the dark places and the hateful places of this world. It's an opportunity for us to say, God isn't dead. God is alive. And one day in the past, he made himself alive in a wee little infant that grew up and changed the world and blessed it. That's the opportunity. You have an opportunity this morning. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you can do so this morning. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's not just a belief, but it's faith, where you confess that, yes, He is God, and He is Lord, and He is And I'm tired of having my hands on the management of you know, the, the steering wheel of my own life. All I seem to do is run it off the road, and you're ready to allow Him to be King, to be Lord, to be God in your life. And you're, you're sick of that old way of living. And you turn 180 degrees in order to not move away from God, but to move closer and closer to Him. Scripture teaches us in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. And not only that, He puts His Spirit inside of you that allows you, that helps you to take His Word and to take His will and, to, and, and with the help of the church and with the help of Scripture to become the human being you were always intended to be. One of hope, one of joy, one of confidence, one of strength and character, all of these things. And it begins as a new birth. The Bible calls being baptized and being converted and, and coming, becoming a child of God a new birth. And you know why you have the chance at a new birth? It's because 2,000 years ago, in a little burg just south of Jerusalem, there was the birth of a child like the world had never seen. And everything that that birth promises can be yours today in your new birth. And we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front if that describes you and you'd like to give your life to Jesus this morning. We want you to come down and to make those, those needs known to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together.